Welcome to the podcast, People More Interesting Than Me. I'm your host, Michael Strumsky. This week, I have longtime friend Emily Dillon. Emily is a writer turned teacher who treats education with curiosity and her students with dignity. As a former magnet student, Emily discusses her thoughts on gifted classes and the racial barriers that accompany this method. Her work takes a deeper look at unconventional linguistic styles while encouraging public schools to be seen more as community centers. Check her out at emilydillonwriting.com. Enjoy. Today I have with me is Emily Dillon, longtime family friend. Hi, How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. We worked it out well. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we have known each other so long and have not really had long in-depth conversations before, so. Which is surprising because you are such a a very good talker, in my opinion. It sounds like you're avoiding it. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fine. I'm sure a lot of people thought of a question today that's perfect specifically for you so you went to a magnet school for high school and first off I went to a magnet school for elementary middle and high school oh I didn't know okay so would you well obviously I think I already you already answered it by that but do you think it was more uh, parentally driven in that case (laughs) Yes. Well, I will say at, eight, at in fourth grade, I like didn't make that decision myself that I remember. Um, mm-hmm. I moved from Flower Valley to Barnsley Elementary between third and fourth grade. Um, and my parents were definitely searching for academic options for me at that time um, because <laughs> I was having some issues in the classroom. You know, like I was the kid that was like, be like crawling under desks by like the teacher was trying to have like reading time. <laughs> um, and so they were trying to figure out like why I was having those sorts of issues. And um, so when they realized that it might be boredom, they were trying to find um, extracurricular or like other academic opportunities. So I got moved to Barnsley. The only reason I ask is because just from your perspective, because I, I know, obviously, you, you taught at Springbrook for a little bit. My, my main question was, do you see, um, obviously, you see a lot of parents pushing their kids, and some are, some are ready, and then obviously, some are, are definitely not. Uh, my question was, do you feel like that should be a, and I know we have a shortage of teachers and like, obviously these type of positions are kind of, I don't know, more uh, whimsical, but uh, maybe a position for a county where you kind of scope out kids who exactly like you were going around and kind of promote them to those magnet type schools. Um, Are you saying like, instead of applying, it would just be like somebody selects you? Yeah. So basically it would kind of be I was thinking like if you pull those type people who might be crawling under chairs or um, don't need as much help bring down numbers like let's say you take this is being very optimistic but say you take 10 percent of the population and i say being very optimistic 10 percent of the population of a school 
then the kids who need more help, they get more attention in theory. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to back up a second. So I, I just shared like my history of magnet schools. However, the research is pretty clear. Um, so as you know, from my resume, I have a master's of education and <laughs> we spend a lot of time looking at the value of gifted programs or really any sort of differentiate or um, segregated learning, right? The research is pretty clear that it helps no one. <laughs> um, that generally speaking, like when you pull gifted students apart, like, and quote unquote gifted, we can have a whole conversation about what that means, which I'm gonna put aside for a second. But if you pull a group of students out and put them in a selected section, even thinking that they're higher achieving, the amount that they're going to achieve higher than they were in the other situation is comparatively, like, is sort of minimal. What it does do is significantly reduce the outcomes for the students in the program where those students were removed. Part of that is because the like the quote unquote gifted students in the history of magnet programs were primarily white upper class children. I am a clear indicator of that. <laughs> it often involved a lot of parent advocacy and it also was a lot of times based on IQ scores, which are fundamentally flawed and racist. <laughs> and um, so with like that being said, there sort of has to be like a whole new approach to like the question, which I think the question fundamentally as like an educator is how do I serve all of my students' needs and help them achieve highly without being bored or feeling like they're being pulled along and not receiving the support they need? And I think like to answer that question doesn't necessarily mean let's segregate the students into different groups, um, especially long-term. And I would argue that like the downside for me was that I was in a quite segregated group of upper-class, mostly white students for my education, even though I was in one of the most diverse counties in the country. <laughs> um, because my classes were almost entirely like my acad my academic classes quote unquote academics so like those stem classes um english math science history um those classes i was almost always exclusively only with other students in the magnet program and then they would reintegrate us for the arts for physical education um and so like even there, there's some kind of interesting distinction that's happening, right? That like the arts and physical education aren't considered as highly academic. These gifted students like don't need separate art and physical education classes, right? So there's like some of that. And the history of the magnet programs is that they were developed really to try and reduce segregation through busing. And in fact, like the Eastern middle school experience that I had was probably the most like extreme example of this. Because it was like, that would have been, uh, I guess, 2001 to 2004 that I was there. And the magnet program was almost entirely white students. And the school home population in downtown Silver Spring was almost entirely Black 
um, primarily, as far as I could tell, African-American, um, and then some Hispanic. And like the division could not have been clearer, including the way that the teachers treated the students, like in the hallways, where like a white student that looked like they were in the magnet program could walk down the hallway without being asked by a teacher for a pass. Um, so <laughs> like, I feel like I have to like, say all of that because I think as a teacher, like I'm coming into it with this very odd experience of being like, yeah, I had a great time in these magnet programs and I made good friends and I like learned from some excellent teachers, but like one, what did I miss? And two, how did the creation of this like segregated environment for me and my classmates, how did that then impact other students? Um, both within the school that I was pulled into and potentially the schools that we left, um, especially in terms of parent advocacy, economic resources, et cetera. Um, and as a teacher, like I actually helped pioneer at Springbrook in the ninth grade, um, a differentiated ninth grade English program, which the goal in that program was to remove all different class levels. So there was no more on level ninth grade, honors ninth grade, pre-IB ninth grade. They had separated them. And personally, as a teacher, it is difficult um, if you're not like well-prepared for differentiating activities and differentiating um, the assignments to support multiple levels of learners in your same room. Thankfully, I had really great support. <laughs> the head of my department um, was really knowledgeable about differentiation and had done a lot of research and went on to get his PhD doing different um, data studies related to that. Um, and I had great like team members, other ninth grade English teachers. And I feel like by sharing that load, I just saw like a huge reduction in behavior problems across my classes and like an increase in just like everyone's base level of like academic engagement. Um, so from my own personal experience, like I would not push like my, I would, I would try not to put my student into a, a magnet program. I would try and advocate within my school for other options. And or if I felt like my child really needed additional support outside of the classroom, look for extracurricular academic intellectual opportunities, um, but it's complicated. Understand. So obviously you stated that you went to ma magnet middle schools, high schools, and it was a pretty nice. And you said it was limited minorities. So what was it like when you started teaching at Springbrook? What were some of the things that kind of, uh, I don't know, you probably know I went to Blake, which is very similar in Composition. Yeah, because it's part of the consortium. Are they still calling it that? Yeah, the consortium. Um, and again, like the challenge with the consortium, um, kind of like any voucher school system, like when there's school choice that's involved like that, again, it can kind of pull resources into different categories. By the time I got to Springbrook, um, Blake and Pate Branch were looked at as sort of like the rich schools in the consortium parents worked really hard to advocate to get their kids into those schools. And everyone was upset when they got to Springbrook. And it was always 
Like, I taught freshmen, they would show up the first week and everyone would be annoyed that they were at Springbrook, that they, like, that had been the one that they had gotten. Um, so that in and of itself is kind of its own interesting <laughs> um, political and structural. What, why was that, by the way? Is it because, like, why did the funding go? Um, so I would say two things. One, again, I think is racism. The composition of students at Springbrook was decidedly more students of color and lower and classism. Um, there were decidedly more students of lower income backgrounds that were at Springbrook. Uh, and so it, that, then it feeds on itself, right? Like if you have a class, like you kind of get to a tipping point and then like parents don't want to send their kids there because they're quote unquote scared. Um, and I think in terms of finances, then the finances follow the students. Blake and Paint Branch, like to this day, at least as far as I still know, I mean, I was there three years ago, four years ago, um, are bursting at the seams with students struggling to like fit their students into like portables and, you know, all this uh, population density. And Springbrook like is not meeting its enrollment. So, um, you know, when those kinds of issues, again, they feed on themselves because then it's like, oh, they're not doing this. I don't want my kid to go there. Um, and, and then there's also less funding because there's less students there. Yeah. How um, do you, how do you uh, say we need more funding or make this school better when you don't have the numbers? And that's where, um, you know, we can get into my beliefs about things. And to be very clear, every teacher I've met has a different feeling about everything. <laughs> like there is no quote unquote, like teacher point of view. Um, I actually worked for the, the union, the teachers union when I was at Springbrook for three of my four years there, I believe. Um, and I would go around and just like talk with teachers, like knock on their classroom doors um, and just ask, like if we were literally doing polling and I would just like ask them like, what things do you want me to take back to the union? Like, what are the priorities for you as a teacher? What is, you know, what's important to you? Um, and what do you want to see improved with your job? And I would think that like I knew what people were going to say and then I would go in and talk with them and it would just be so many different, so many different perspectives and opinions. So yeah, I think that in and of itself just like is, is always interesting. Um, you are such like a, that, uh, you are such a union representative. Like if, if anybody would ask me, like, <laughs> yeah, she was probably a union representative. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Um, yeah. But um, to get back to your very original question about how I felt at Springbrook when I went there, um, I was happy to be there. I had been offered jobs at two different schools in Montgomery County, and I chose Springbrook. Um, and the team that I worked with in the ninth grade, my very first year, was super supportive and lovely. And um, the head of my department and I got along great. And um, like all of that, that was good. And I, in terms of the student population, um, I think that my, ex like I had spent the previous, well, I'd spent two years after college in criminal justice reform work, right? And I would say during that time was really when I had my like racial awakening. This would have been back in 2012 to like 2014. Um, 
And, you know, when the Freddie Gray stuff happened in Baltimore, like I started going to those protests and it, and my understanding of the structural racial disparities in our society, it like, it's, it, I mean, it's so obvious in the criminal justice system and the policy that I was working on that it just like couldn't be ignored. Um, and I was doing a lot of research and learning about that and had some really wonderful mentors who kind of like smacked me upside the head when I said stupid things <laughs> and, and taught me better. And um, I, so by the time I got to Springbrook, um, a couple of years later and had been through um, a teacher education program. Um, and I had deliberately decided not to do like some sort of AmeriCorps or some sort of program where I was volunteering. By that point, I had really decided like, if I'm going to teach children, like I want to be well prepared for that job. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to go for a year and get my master's in education and then I'm going to go teach students and I wanted to be contributing still to the like racial and economic and like structural inequality like work that I had been doing in criminal justice reform I just didn't want to be at a computer anymore that was like the only reason I left was I was like going crazy sitting at a desk <laughs> so but I really believed in the work um so I think by the time I got to Springbrook there were like two factors at play. One, which was like, I already had some knowledge of the inequalities that my students were facing. So I wasn't in a position to like need them to educate me on some basic things that other white educators might need that first year. Um, but then also, you know, it's this kind of funny um, catch 22 that I think most people working in communities of color notice pretty quickly, which is like white teachers are actually given a lot of um, sort of like leeway and credit by the students in a weird sort of way for like being there. Like if you're like in a low income or in a community of color, they're like, I think the instinct is like, oh, why are you here? Like you would only be here if you wanted to be here um, once they sort of like suss you out the first like week. So um, it was actually at times, like in talking, I had a lot of colleagues of color, um, and especially Black women, and a lot of them sort of reported that it was really challenging, like working in communities of color, because a lot of them would see them and kind of imagine their mom or their aunt. And like, so the dynamic with them as a teacher was very different than their dynamic with me, who they associated like whiteness with like authority and like educational institutions. <laughs> so um, it wasn't until I entered spaces that were, um, the term is predominantly white institutions, PWIs. It wasn't until I entered PWIs that I really actually felt that it was challenging to teach students of color um, because rightfully so in those circumstances where almost all the students around them are white, and almost all of their teachers are white, there's a lot more initial suspicion about your motives, about which institution you're serving, about, you know, whether you're going to be supportive of them or not. Um, so I would actually say, like, my easiest time teaching was at Springbrook. And then as I moved to other institutions um, that were PWIs, it, it was, it has at times been more challenging to develop relationships with students of color.
Okay. Um, what do you find is like, like you said, Springbrook was the easiest way. What, I guess, what type of tactics do you use now that kind of help you fight that? <laughs> As if it's like a tactical thing. And that's hard because it's like every student is different. <laughs> um, so there's, I think it's just a lot of relationship building. It's a lot of like not making assumptions. Um, not thinking that like all my black students are going to like love when I talk about like racial justice. And when I talk about, you know, whatever thing of the day it is, um, at, for me now at Loyola, you know, I, um, try and teach about linguistic differences in writing, um, and different grammatical structures outside of the standard English norm. Hamburger um, model. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit beyond the hamburger model of middle school writing. Um, but so when I talk about those things, you know, I can't assume that like a student of color is going to agree with me on thing on those things. I can't assume that they're going to even feel comfortable talking about it, especially not in a group of white students. So I think getting to know um, all of my students in all of their identities and different backgrounds um, slowly, like respectfully, <laughs> with boundaries. <laughs> Um, offering support when needed, you know, trying to connect students to um, faculty of color, um, if that's something that they're looking for. Of course, you don't want to overburden your um, colleagues of color who are working incredibly hard to support like, all of these students of color in a predominantly white institution. Um, but yeah, I think just trying to be a resource that's like respectful to students, but also will stand up for them um, to try and be the voice in the classroom of like clear, like what respect means, what it looks like. Um, and then, you know, helping people as much as they ask, right? Being flexible about um, when students who need to work, like aren't able to come to class that day and not you know, making it their life incredibly difficult instead, you know, finding ways to accommodate those things. Um, so the name of it, like for me, the way that I would support students of color is very similar in a lot of ways to also the way that I would support um, students of all sorts of differences, which is like, you know, um, again, like getting to know them, being respectful, creating accommodations as students need. Uh, what is something in your teaching career that you kind of want to voice that people don't, you don't think it's vocalized enough in the public? Um, one thing that I believe really strongly in that I advocate for a lot is student choice, um, which goes back to the conversation about um, like differentiation and having options for students in the classroom. Um, and I think especially when you are doing a survey course where you're trying to introduce students to something that they might not otherwise feel motivated to study. And English and writing classes often fall in that category where students have not like elected to be there, but it's required. Um, so finding ways for students to engage with material that um, is, you know, helpful to each of them independently is a really big like in pedagogical challenge. And I think the way to do that is to create assignments where choice is built into the task, whether that's choice in terms of the content 
like what they can write about if we're doing a research paper, whether that's the form of the assignment. So, okay, the content is important, right? Like I really want to focus on, you know, you understanding the themes of this novel. It's like you're teaching a novel. Then, okay, great. Let's focus on that skill, like analyzing the themes of the novel, but you can now share what you have learned in multiple different formats, whether it's writing, whether it's in a video, whether it's in a discussion, et cetera. Um, so I think like from an instructional standpoint to me, um, I think like really breaking down skills as a teacher is something that I really like put a lot of value in and try and spend a lot of time on is asking myself like, what is the really essential thing that I'm trying to teach them right now? And then how can I allow them to have choice in all of the other aspects of the assignment so that they can approach it from directions that are interesting, engaging, and motivational to them, as well as something that would probably be useful beyond. Um, and I also like to put my plug in here <laughs> um, in terms of higher education for the community college, <laughs> um, because I taught at Prince George's Community College for two years. Um, before I landed this full-time faculty position at Loyola. And like, it's such a pleasure to teach um, students of multiple like age ranges and like multiple um, different like spots in their education. Like I had some people coming back to get an associate's degree after having had a whole career in something else with like three kids at home. And then they're also coming to my class like twice a week in the evening and they've got like the baby behind them in the background on the Zoom. So just to say that um, I think the idea of like continuing education is really super important when people are actually motivated and like want to be there. Um, and it's not just like a step in their lives that they're progressing onto, right? Most of education is involuntary. Um, most of the education we receive is because we're legally mandated to go. Um, and that was what made teaching high school really difficult. Like I had plenty of students who didn't want to be there, um, but legally they're mandated to be there or they're considered truant and their parents are liable for criminal charges. Um, and uh, so I think that like it's it's a really big pleasure to teach when people are at a point in their lives where they really decided like this I I'm here not just because it's required by law I'm not here because it's just the next thing I'm supposed to do it's I'm here because like I really want to learn this thing and it's like important to me <laughs> um and that's that's just like a really big pleasure as a as a teacher and did you ever feel weird, I guess, teaching or editing or correcting people that were maybe in their 40s or 50s? No, um, because I think like they had skills in other areas, like, and I would make that clear, like, I mean, a lot, of, you know, um, I had, like, I'm thinking of a couple people who were like nurses, and I like faint every time I see blood. So if I needed to learn something, I would go to them to like teach me a certain medical thing. Um, and so I make it clear, like in my classes that I am not an expert on everything, right? Like I just have a lot of knowledge and a lot of practice with writing in the English language, specifically in written standard English. And so if you're interested in learning that, like that's 
the resource that I can be for you. Um, and like, there are a lot of my students, you know, when it's couched in those terms and they feel respected, they're like really hungry to like use you as a resource and to practice and to, um, and to offer, you know, and try something new that might be hard for them. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to like tear them apart as if they're somehow now like awful students and they can't write. It's just like, no, this is, this is a thing you're working on and here's how I can assist. Yeah. The only reason I bring that up is, uh, in, in my field and other people I know when they deal with people who are maybe like five or 10 years older and their, their manager and stuff like that, it just, it makes difficult, uh, situations and, uh, conversations. So I was just curious if you had ever yeah. had a situation like that. I guess that's an interesting point. I guess I would say like the difference is that, um, I am not in a position to like hire or fire them, right? Like their living isn't dependent on me. <laughs> so the power dynamic is quite different. The, the dynamic at play in our relationship is whether or not they receive a, a, a good grade from me. Um, but I hope with all of my students that like what helps them get good grades or not is like very clear in my rubrics in like the standards that I'm, you know, outlining so that they feel confident that like if they're putting in the work and they're approaching, you know, different um, standards and objectives that they're, they're going to get the grade that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What is your, I can't think of a good way to say this besides touchdown moment or <laughs> I don't know, like when like your classes, like obviously I, I would be like, when they turn in something and is it is it when you've kind of turned them around and they've written something that is just so amazing or is it like what really excites you with your <laughs> students when they do and like you said it's different for every teacher so I was trying to understand what yours would be that's a good question uh that's a hard one um no, I think because I, the, the thing that like popped into my head when you asked me this question is a moment I had with a student at, um, at one of the high schools where I taught, it was a student in, um, special education. Cause I, I, in, when I was in high school, every year that I taught, I taught, um, co-taught classes. So a portion of my students were students with, um, IEPs, Individualized Education Plans for Diagnosed Disabilities. And this particular student had that. Um, he also was from a very low-income background and couldn't read. And he was in my ninth grade class. Could bar like, bar barely read. Um, I think probably the worst reader that I had of any student in my time. Um, as a teacher. And I was at the same time, um, I started at Springbrook, um, something called the free store, which was a school store where all of the products in the store were free and where students just had to sign their name on a piece of paper and tell us what they took. Um, but that was all that was required because it would just be a log of like what we need to purchase for the next week. 
And I was actually able to start that with a very generous donation. Speaking of like the Rockville family, a very generous donation from Carmelo, the the head um, the the head owner of the Amaya restaurant in Rockville. Oh. Um, and I was sitting at the bar there one day after work and just talking with him about my Salvadoran students because he's from El Salvador. And he just went into the back, didn't tell me anything, and he came back with a five hundred dollar check and just gave. Wow. It. And he's like, do whatever you need to do with this. Go buy things for your students. He's an amazing, amazing human. (laughs) So I took that as seed money and I um, went to the principal of our school and I said, I want to open this, but I need a a closet or a room. Okay. So we opened the free store, um, got more community donations. And so from that store, this student who was on a low income background couldn't read, I helped get him some stuff that he needed. Um, And in particular, he got to pick out um, a shirt from, oh, some mall, you know, it was like, he wanted a Thrasher shirt, right? (laughs) So, um, and from there, he, I was, I, I asked him, I said, you know, if you want, like, I know reading is difficult for you. If you want to come in at lunch, like when no one else is here, we can sit together and read. Um, and I'll get some really like easy, really, really, really easy books from the library. So I like went to the children's section of Springbrook's library, like it was supposed to be for the child development classes. <laughs> and I got him some books. And um, to be clear, he probably, I, I think he came once, maybe twice at lunch. This was not like an ongoing thing that lasted forever. <laughs> or that probably made like an actual academic impact. But um, we sat together and he was actually able to sound out some words and like read through this book. And it was like so exciting when he finished (laughs) that like, that was like the, that's like the most positive moment that I can remember as a teacher of like the value of building a relationship with a student, like meeting them where they're at, um, really fulfilling like the needs that they need, like the things that they need in their life to feel dignity so that they can take a risk and do something that's hard for them, right? Like to have been able to like support him and like see those concrete steps. And I don't have that power (laughs) with like most of my students to like be able to fulfill the different needs in their life that they need before they can be motivated to learn. but I was able to do it for like a couple of different days with like that one kid. <laughs> and that felt really good. That does sound good. That sounds like something Hallmark would have had that on there. It sounds like something <laughs> like, I don't know. What's what's that? I just saw something with that Hillary Swank. Uh, oh, are you talking about like any of these like. Freedom Riders, Stand yeah. and Deliver. The, well, yeah. and the trouble with all of those is like they're very white savior complex movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, wait, I, stand and deliver isn't. Well, that one I don't know. The freedom uh, is the, the only one I'm familiar with. But I, I mean, it's tough because like here I am, a white educator that has been in a lot of you know communities of color, and so we all as white educators deal with that. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, and now here I am, like at Loyola, teaching some very privileged students from private schools, um, primarily white students. Um, and who with like very excellent skills. And I would say 
what I really enjoy about those conversations and like teaching now in that environment um, is the moments when I get to totally blow their expectations of like what the writing classroom is. Um, you know, they come in like ready. I'm going to like win freshman English and I have learned how to do all my citations and I can write a close analysis and a research paper. And then like the first two essays that I have them do, they're, they make them all squirm in their seats because give, one give of them. Give me an example. Can I, can I guess before <laughs> you have them, sure. you have them write what the definition of happiness is. Is it something like that? Is it something no, like completely that, abstract? No, no, no. That they would be excellent at because that's very abstract. What I and they're used to that. What um, the first essay they have to write in their speaking voice. So instead of writing in standard English, they're writing based on the way that they talk, and they have to create a formal argument, but written grammatically based on and vocab-wise based on the speech that they would use if they were discussing it with a friend. So similar to like what a, like a novel would be between If characters. it was like a dialogue, yes. Um, and then the second one is they write a personal essay, like a personal story. It's creative nonfiction. So this is not argumentative. And they do that like whole assignment. And then for the revision process, it is not your typical peer editing typo, you know, whatever they have to do something called a major risk revision. Shout out to Sonia Huber, one of my professors at um, Fairfield University who um, shared this assignment with me, but um, they have to do a major risk revision, which means they are basically being graded on the ex like how extreme they can like change their essay and still make it like make sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, and they have to do a reflection with that, which is really like the heart of their grade for that assignment, because, you know, I want them to be able, like taking a risk doesn't always work, right? So I want them to be willing to mess up their work and like do something that maybe doesn't work. But then as long as they can write in the reflection about that and acknowledge like it didn't work and here were the reasons. Um, and so it, it can be everything from like adding a new character in to totally changing the genre of the piece to reorganizing the essay and starting at the end of the story um and that one also throws them for a loop because they're just like they've never done any kind of revision like that well everything they've probably done is they're trying to get to perfection or something yes. good whereas this is it sounds like they're trying to get at something that they've never done expanding their skill set yes <laughs> Throwing them in the deep end, basically, which they haven't done since they probably learned how to read or actually swim. You know what I mean? Like, and I am all for like it is very important to learn the technical skills of any craft, and writing is a craft. It is also important. Writing is a, an artistic craft, right? Kind of like, in my opinion, it's kind of like building a really beautiful chair. Like, you need to be able to like accurately use all the tools available to you. You need to understand the physics of the chair and make sure that like it will withstand weight. It has a clear purpose, but also there's beauty and like there's spontaneity and there's risk involved in trying new things. And so as a creative process where experimentation is essential to any artistic process, like I want to bring that back into my writing classrooms. Um, 
So particularly for students coming from high achieving backgrounds where perfectionism has really been the standard that they've been held to, um, I want them to continue to use their technical skills, but I want them now to push themselves to experiment. Um, and that usually shakes them up and they come to me like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> and I would have had the same reaction when I was a student because I certainly was a perfectionist as well. And you definitely seem like a office hours type person who is always at office hours. Oh, I have a lot of students come to office hours. The last question for you. Say you have children at some point, what are the solid things you'd want to do, you being a teacher, that you'd really want to, like, nail down to them? Like, like for example, I've heard a lot of people say 20 pages a day once they become five, or yeah. what, what do you really want to narrow down on an education sense with them? Um, I don't think I would have a rigid feeling about a certain number of pages a day or something like that. I think for me, it's like larger philosophy things, like coming back to that idea of like treating school with curiosity um, and seeking to perfect like your skills in different subject areas as a craft, as well as learning to experiment, like not approaching it too much with perfectionism, you know, like playful learning um, would be like, my goal with whoever you know my children are but the other piece too is is like I could end up having a kid who's like rigidly sure they want to do only one thing which to me would be like mad thing right because like I'm like the the everything let's learn about everything and explore and um and I think if they feel really super set on that one thing like I kind of have to trust that like that's the right decision for them and like that scares me because I'm like, what if that one thing doesn't work out, you know? Um, but just because I'm scared about it doesn't mean that that's <laughs> something that my child needs to be scared about. Um, so I think like that's like that value is sort of what I would approach. And then I think broadly in terms of how to engage in school, um, you know, executive functioning is this like really niche term that gets thrown around um, in education circles. But the basic principles of it are like the soft skills that help you succeed in school, but also in other areas like jobs, um, as well as life tasks and things like that. And I would, I would try and help my kid practice those soft skills because as often as possible, um, you know, everything from time management to planning to organization to resiliency to flexibility like those things i feel like are the skills that i would like want to practice and focus on in the home more than like working on any particular you subject. know subject yeah makes sense because i mean it applies to everything yeah and i think um it's hard because schools really require you to be good at those things, but often don't have the time and the resources to teach them to you, um, which is unfortunate. Like personally, I feel like every school needs twice as many adults as are currently in it. Um, and I don't necessarily even mean that class sizes need to be smaller. I mean like therapists, like licensed psychologists and psychiatrists on staff. I mean, you know, food 
kitchens and like food pantry workers and free stores and like to me you can't teach like if we're talking children in particular k through 12 you can't teach children who are legally mandated to be there if you don't treat the school like a community center and have every resources available there that's going to help students be prepared to learn um so that i just yeah it it would be i i feel like we would get such better results out of that than we would out of throwing money into technology or whatever other thing of the day that um isn't helping students like access the basic motivation of learning um yeah i like it is there anything you want to promote while you're on here promote um anything you're working on no why not so i mean i'm as a writer i'm always working on um, different projects. It's been slow since I just started this new job at Loyola in terms of publishing things, but um, I have published different, I published book reviews, my own um, creative work, poetry, essays, etc. cetera. Um, and you can find all of that on my website, emilydillonwriting.com. Um, and I also have Instagram and Twitter accounts associated with my writing life. Um, the Instagram handle is the same as my website at Emily Dillon writing. Um, and Twitter, I believe is at Emily underscore Dillon. Cause it started, um, you're starting prior, Twitter. Prior to my writing life. I know that's We'll see how long it lasts, but Bye. academic, like ac academia has like a whole, there's like a whole academic Twitter. It's a whole thing. So that's, I've sort of been in that, but I'm mostly an observer. But yeah, so those, are the, those are the things I would promote is um, go go check out my writing if you're interested. And, um, and I'll, I'll throw it up with my uh, Facebook post. Thanks. That would be great. No problem. One day I'll have a published book. I'm not there yet. Um, and then I can promote that. <laughs> there you go. And I'll, I'll even do the, uh, you know, I have a, uh, what's it called? Uh, a book out on Audible? No. It's not. It's not good. I didn't write it. <laughs> okay. I, I just it, read it. <laughs> oh, you're you're the voice. Uh, yeah. Which it's, whoa, that's very cool. It, well, it's it's just some girl who wrote a book, and then she picked me to read it, and then some girl that wrote a book. She spent a lot of hours writing an important story. <laughs> yeah, and she had some schmuck read it. <laughs> uh, I secretly have always wanted to do um, audiobook reading. Because I read out loud as a teacher all the time. Oh, oh. I, thought right? you like meant, I thought you meant like at home. I'm like, oh, poor Ryan. Oh, yeah. No, not that. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like what you just did, like, you know, like make a little money on the side by reading. Someone. It's very hard because it's just hard because you have to be perfect. And then yeah. when you listen back and you hear all these, these pops and like these peas and then your mouth does yeah. things you never noticed. And you're going so it and that's where i think my background in theater is really helpful because i used to have like dictation practice and um yeah you you and, would and enunciation uh, and you should try it well i i frankly <laughs> i don't like listening to my recorded voice because it sounds very low i have a very low voice for a woman um and i get a little bit of you do voice training though or you do singing so yes. you know how to you, you were taught by 
I definitely have a little bit of the vocal fry thing, you know, that people do when I start, you know, just, so I'd have to be really careful. That's the thing that I would have to be careful of is, um, like not getting into the low range, like such a low range where I'm vocal frying. Cause that would get really annoying real, real quick. I think, you, I mean, it's just like your students <laughs> on their second assignment. You just gotta uh, try. I know I, I'm really good at dishing out things, but not so great at doing them myself, which is why I'm a teacher, right? That's what they say. If you don't do teach. Yep. If you can't do it, you teach it. So that's, if you can engineer, you pat it. That's, I, I just made that up, but I definitely agree with that. Um, well, thank you very much for finally being on an episode. I appreciate it. Of course. Um, uh, I hope I answered and was it interesting enough. You did a great job. <laughs> okay, good. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, Please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.